Well, it's good to uh, be with you this morning. And uh, Matthew mentioned the word reality. And that is actually the, the title I've put over our message this morning, reality. Good word that, isn't it? In fact, when um, I, I sort of started coming here because there was a group uh, and they were looking for somebody who played a bit of guitar because their guitarists had moved off and uh, gone to other jobs. And um, they talked about what should we call the group. We actually called it reality. <laughs> it was called reality. But that's just an aside. If you have a Pew Bible, it's page 354, and we're going to read chapter 2 of Esther. Now, I'm not going to... Um, read a passage from it. We're going to read through the passage as I speak. And that's good because the, the benefit of that is that you know that it's God's word. It's not just made up. And also, you can follow it through. And if you have any questions, going back a long time in some of the churches, they used to have the main platform and then a bit down here, which was a place where the elders would sit. And while the preacher was preaching, they would have their Bibles and they would be ready to correct him if he went off track. So if anybody wants to bring the seat, sit here and correct him. But you know, that's not a bad thing, now, is it? And if you ever do have questions, question me, we go through Revelation and you know, what you can do, um, there's bound to be answer, um, questions you have. I won't have the answers because we're looking at it together to see what we can learn. But you know, it's no bad thing if you are struggling a bit or you're thinking, oh, I wasn't sure about that bit. Just ask me, you know, even if you want to phone me up. Anyway, Esther chapter 2, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now in chapter 1, the question for us, the reader, might be, where is God in all these things? Good question. You're going to ask that question time and time again as you go through this book of Esther. It's a question that we often ask when we feel the apparent absence of God's presence. That's worth thinking about. We feel the absence of God's presence. That doesn't mean he's not there. Sometimes in our lives when things seem to be going wrong, it feels as though that the walls are closing in on us. Rising prices that apply financial pressures. Unemployment bringing with it the lack of assurance about the future. Health concerns for ourselves and for our family and for our friends. Personal worries. Grief. Loneliness. Depression. Both national and international uncertainties. These are the things that we see. These are the realities of life. Some of these things we can expect. Some of these things we have to be prepared to accept. The likes of as we grow older. Yeah, the aches and the pains. We need glasses. These things happen. These are natural things which we have to live with, which we expect. But we struggle with those unexpected things. Things that are things we've had our trust in. 
Things that seem to happen, sometimes they come at us out of the blue. A word you'll hear quite a lot today is the word escapism. Escapism is a word we're familiar with. Listen to the dictionary definition of the word escapism. The tendency to seek distraction and relief from unpleasant realities, especially by seeking entertainment or engaging in fantasy. That's the dictionary definition. That's a good definition. It's good because that's what it means. Sometimes we, we, we lose that. You don't really see the depth of a word. Seeking entertainment or engaging in fantasy. This, this is a road that many will be encouraged to walk down. To walk down in order to escape what? The realities of life. Walt Disney, Netflix, and many other organisations will be only too happy to supply us with things that at times of themselves are good. And sometimes we need those things to help us maybe relax. But escapism isn't the answer to the true realities of life. That's the thing. It has its place. Escapism. And we can enjoy it at times. But that's not the way to deal with the true realities and true troubles of life. When we come to the book of Esther, we read what is a love story. It's a story that starts with a beautiful young girl, comes from a life of hardship and poverty. She marries the king, and then along with the help of her hero uncle, they defeat the villain, they save the day. We all go away with a feeling of satisfaction. If you go away from the book of Esther expecting nothing more than a good feeling, then we've come to the book for the wrong reason. The book of Esther, it's a powerful, it's an important, much ignored book or looked at for the wrong reasons. It's powerful, it's important. It's a book of the Bible. It's a book that addresses some of the harsh realities of life. And they are realities that many people experience today. We've got to look at this in context. We've got to look at it in its time. But we've got to take things from it and apply them to our day. Now, when we go through this book, you're going to see an awful lot of parallels in the lives that we live. If you look around what's happening in the world, if you look around what's happening in our country, if you look at, around what's happening in our lives. Escapism is to run away and to hide from the realities of life, to try to cover them over. The Bible tells us how to deal with the realities of life. 
story of Esther, it is a true life account of war. Of a nation that faces the peril of extinction. Extinction. Is that the right word? <laughs> extinction. Extinction. That's what it's about. You remember that word now, wouldn't you? Because I messed it up. Oh, there you go. It is a beautiful account. It is a beautiful account of love, but it's a beautiful account of God's love. It's a beautiful account of God's provision for his people. And it's a beautiful account, and this is the thing, of the protection that he has for the good news. That is the gospel. If you want to know the truth about sin and death, and the need for repentance and forgiveness, then the Bible is the book to come to. That is where you'll find the real realities of life. This phrase has been used many times, warts and all. Doesn't cover anything up. It brings everything to us, the good things, the bad things. That's because it's true. It's God's truth. And these realities of life are true. just going to change the battery thing, but what I'll do, I'll carry on without the, the battery and Matthew can change it as I carry on. You know, us as Christians, we have the gift of eternal life. But we need to look for encouragement. Encouragement as we struggle to cope, cope with the realities of life. Then, Esther, this book, if we are feeling like that now, if we're struggling with the realities that life brings to us, then this book is the book to come to. It's about exiles. It's about exiles seeking to live in a strange land as they try to maintain their faith. They try to maintain their commitment to God in the face of great opposition. They're living in a culture that treats women as objects who become victims of abduction and abuse. We see pride and power. We see oppression. That is the order of the day in society. Can you see parallels with all those things? These are the days that Esther was living in. These are the days that she went through what she went through. And it's relative to us. The society that she lived in condoned genocide. That's a reality. The book is about people who trust in God as they deal with the struggles of everyday life that causes them to have to protect their true identity thus putting them in a position of spiritual compromise. That's a big thing. And while this is happening, 
They would be asking the question, where is God in all this? See the parallels again. See what we're coming to when we come to this book. We're going to see later that God sometimes calls those who are faithful to him to compromise. That might be too strong a word, but we're going to use it anyway. Maybe adapt to things that maybe you're not really au fait with or in agreement with. But this is not a license to live outside of God's law. But we might be called to change our lifestyle for the glory of God. And in doing that, we must not compromise our faith. That's the position that Esther is in. We're going to see that as we go through it. That's the position that many today are living in, in countries where there's great opposition to the gospel. We're going to see that as well. Is God with Esther and his people who are living in this foreign land? And the answer is yes. But as you go through the book, you won't hear God's name mentioned. And for Christians today, throughout the world, is God with his people? And the answer is yes. Things will happen at times that might cause us to think that God has deserted us. But the truth is that God is working for the good that is in all things to the benefit of his people. Sometimes it's hard to see at the time. You recognize the verse I alluded to then from what Paul said in Romans 8 verse 28. God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What have we seen so far in Esther chapter 1? Just cast your minds back. We see here the power of King Xerxes, the vastness of his empire, the royal glory that is bestowed upon him, the wow factor of his palace and the lavishness and the extravagance of his banquet and banqueting hall. He has everything, everything that the world could offer. You know, you can read all about this King Xerxes, not just here in the Bible, but in the history books. It's interesting to see his life and see what he did, how he defeated the, 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 or the, the, the Persian, Medo-Persians defeated the Babylonians then took over. He was one of those Medo-Persians kings. And you can see what they did. And you can read all about them and how they were fighting against the Greeks because the Greeks were sort of <laughs> about to bring, come in and defeat them. But we're just looking at this passage here about a real king and a real event. And we see the limit of his power. 
when his wife refuses to put herself on display as one of his prized possessions, Xerxes then had a decree put on his wife Vashti, permanently banishing her from his presence. Now the importance of this is we see something about Persian law. And the something is that once Persian law has been written, it cannot be re repealed. So remember that. That's a relevant fact in this story of Esther. The question is, where is God? We haven't seen him in chapter 1. Chapter 2, 1 to 4. Later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let us search, let a search be made for a beautiful young virgin for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of this realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Higai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let the beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king. Okay. This is a real event, it's not a fairy story. This really happened. This decree um, about Vashti was done in accordance with Persian law. It was irreversible. Even the king could not change it. He regarded his actions as what? What was he thinking at this point? I don't know. He probably felt a bit bad about it, but he couldn't do anything uh, to put it right or to... to to change the law. He had to live with this. Maybe he was feeling sorry for himself, but whatever it was, the proposal that was made to him pleased him, and he enthusiastically gave his stamp of approval for this to happen. This is what today you probably would call an act of parliament. This was legal. This was commissioned by the authorities of the day. The criteria, the girls must be pure, young and beautiful. The action men were commissioned to search throughout what was the then known world and bring these girls back to the city of Susa. What would happen to these girls? They'd be given a course of beauty treatment that consisted of a lot more and a day's pampering at a local spa. You might think, oh, this is good, isn't it? Beauty treatment, yeah, yeah. How long would it last? Verse 12, 12 months of beauty treatment prescribed for the women, six months with oil of men, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. That might sound quite attractive to some of you ladies, but this is all to gratify one man. All this, and the bottom line is to please and to gratify this one man. We need to stop and think about what's really happening here. This wasn't a, a voluntary beauty contest. You know, come along girls and get all this free treatment. No, no, that's not what this is about. This was a legalized abduction. It seems that neither the girls nor their families had a choice. Some of these girls would have been transported many hundreds of miles. This is through the then known world. Some coming 
from as far away as India, being brought on that long journey to the city of Susa, under escort, with people whose language they probably didn't even understand. They wouldn't have all spoke Persian or Mead. They would have spoke Indian and, and all the different languages that surround. And they're all being herded in, taken away from their families and being brought to this city. Verse 5 and 7, the scene changes. Now there was in the city of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. Remember that? He was specifically told the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Adasha, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So, the nation of Israel had been split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which was composed of the ten tribes, who kept the name Israel, the kingdom of Israel, they were taken captivity to Assyria. You can read about that in two kings. In two kings, you can also read about the two tribes of Judah, Judah and Benjamin. Okay, those two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, known as the southern kingdom of Judah. Why is that important? Because that is the line through which the promised Messiah would come. Mordecai spent years in captivity in Babylon. One of the men taken along with him was his relative and his relative's wife. And they had a daughter, more than likely born in Babylon. But they died. Mordecai took care of her and he brought her up as his daughter. What did that make then? What did it make Mordecai? He became a single parent family, bringing up a young girl when he's a captive in Babylon. This family had already suffered hardship and loss, and it wasn't getting any better, was it? Well, things did start to improve. When the Persians defeated the Babylonians, they took over their empire, but now, in this last scenario, these two people, who were still where they were, but now they're controlled by the Persians, but they've got a degree of freedom, but they're about to be separated. Separated. This young girl is going to be taken from him. He didn't give consent. She didn't give consent. She was taken from him. Where's God in the life of this family? Taken into exile. Parents die leaving a daughter. A cousin who then brings up the daughter. 
There's another question raised here. Do you notice that Esther has two names? Why does Esther have two names? Have you ever thought about that? She is a Jewess living as an exile in what is a foreign country. Her Hebrew name is Hadasha, which I understand means um, myrtle tree or peace, love and prosperity. <laughs> she hasn't had much of that, has she? Probably none of it. She's better known by her Persian name, Esther, probably with the purpose to conceal her true identity. The text suggests that that's why she uses that Persian name and not a Hebrew name. She's attempting to live not by choice, but by circumstances in two different worlds. You know, there's a lot of Christians living like that in the world today. Living not by choice, but by circumstances. In a world that, to quote the song, that is not their home. You know, this world is not our home either. And circumstances are changing. We can see that all around us. Eight verse 11, verse 11. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women had were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Agai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Agai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him, won his favour. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special foods. He assigned to her seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Do you get that? That's there because we understand what's happening here. She's having to hide her true identity. Every day he walked to and fro near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. You know, as I said earlier, these girls, they didn't come voluntarily. They were summoned by a court order. They were officially required to go with the men who had taken them from their families. Esther, who actually lived in Susa, was one of the girls who was taken and put into the care. This man who had charge of the harem, he noticed something in Esther, something that was different, different from the other girls. And I suspect that he saw something of an inner beauty. One who had been brought up to honour the Lord. We can see that in this text. We can see it in the life that she's lived. We can see it in the care that Mordecai has for this girl. He would have been a good teacher. What did he teach her? He taught her about his God, the God of Israel. He taught her about faith and trust. 
in the God of Israel. And I think this would have come out in their character. I think this is the beauty that we see by this um, man who had care over her while she was here. 12 to 20, before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatment prescribed for the woman, six months with oil of myrrh, six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go into the king. Anything she wanted was given to her by her, given, given to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem for the care of Sashkat, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman, Mordecai had adopted the daughter of his uncle Abhila to go to the king. She asked for nothing other than what Agai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favour of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month of the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the women, and she won his favour and approved more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the province and distributed gifts and royal like um, liberality. And when the virgins were assembled the second time, Mordecai was sitting there at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as he had done when he was bringing her up. Esther, she's in that difficult position. But from what we know, she's maintained her faith. She's had to keep her identity secret. But she's still trusting in God. But where is God? And why is it that she's having to go through all these things? Why does God let us see a young girl who's taken from her family be introduced into a system of indoctrination that will groom her for the gratification of one man, the king? Where is God in the story of Esther? The story is not over yet, and things are about to get worse. But I want us just to think about this as we close. Think about what's happening here. Think about how Mordecai and Esther are having to adapt and change their lifestyle to fit in with the things that are happening in their lives. But going through that, they are keeping their faith. They are not turning away from God. They can't see God, they can't feel God, but God is at work. And they don't know it. Not at this point. And they don't know the bigger picture. This is to protect, not just the nation, but protect the gospel. You see that? 
Remember the story of Joseph? Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He had to adapt. He was in prison. He was apparently ignored by God. Remember, the other two prisoners, one was executed, but one went back to work with the king. And nothing changed for Joseph. He was still stuck in prison. Was he being ignored by God? The most painful period of his life, his suffering saved God's chosen people. His brothers, his father, the nation of Israel. That's where God was. Working with the life of Joseph. The suffering and the abuse and rejection that Jesus suffered. Why? To bring salvation. He came, God became man. He walked this earth. He lived as we lived. That was a, <laughs> it's almost too small to say a life change. What did he do? He got criticized for what he did. He walked with sinners. But he never sinned. He adapted his lifestyle. You could say he compromised. That's not the right word, compromise. He adapted his lifestyle for a purpose. But you know, it wasn't for his purpose. It was for God's purpose. You know, when Joseph adapted his lifestyle, it wasn't for his purpose. It was for God's purpose. And so Esther here is adapting her lifestyle why? For her purpose? No. It's for God's purpose. And when Jesus died, he died for you and me. And it was God's will that that would happen. Why? So that God's purpose would be fulfilled and salvation would come to you and me. Salvation wouldn't have come if Jesus hadn't died. Salvation wouldn't have come if Joseph had started to look after himself and said, where's God in all this? I'm going to now do what I want to do. And if Esther, if Esther had not adapted her lifestyle, as difficult as it was, the things she had to do were not for her purpose. They were for God's purpose. She did not. Joseph did not. Jesus did not compromise the trust and the faith that they had in God. And that's the lesson for us. Things are happening. Why, Lord? Where are you? I can't see you. Will we blame him? Or will we say, look, I don't understand, Lord. But it's to your purpose. It's to recognize God's presence in our lives. The feeling that might cause us to doubt our faith, compromise our walk, 
it might be for some people like Esther to have to hide their identity. What can we do? Well, we can pray. And also, as the psalmist said in Psalm 51 verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. And also believe. And this is it. This is the strength of this verse that we often quote and don't always think about. In all these things, Joseph, Esther, Jesus, you and me, in all these things, God is working for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Father, we do thank you for this group of Esther. And as we go through it, we pray that we will not just skip over it and only see what seems to be almost a fairy story. Help us to see the realities of it. Help us to see the struggle that Mordecai and Esther would have gone through when these things were thrust upon them. But our Father, they weren't doing it for their purpose. They were doing it that your name might be glorified. Now, Father, when we struggle, maybe that's why we are struggling. Because... It is to your glory and for your purpose. And your purpose is that none should perish but have eternal life. We ask your continued blessing upon us now. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to stand and sing our final hymn. It's hymn number 421, Like a River Glorious, 421.